Good evening. I'm Marshall Price, and I approved this message. <laughs> Welcome to the first review panel of 2008. Um, I'm going to introduce our moderator. David Cohen is the director of the New York Studio School Gallery. He is an art critic for the New York Sun, and he is the editor of artcritical.com. I just want to thank our funders who make this event possible, including the Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation, the Daedalus Foundation, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and the New York State Council on the Arts. So with that, I will turn it over to David. Thank you very much indeed. And thanks to the Academy for making this possible and for organizing it so beautifully and for um, publicizing it well enough that we have a full house. And uh, thank you for being a full house. Um, how many of you have never been to the review panel? Ah, well, that's, that's nice to hear. Welcome. Let me just uh, tell you what we do and remind the regulars of our format. Uh, we're reviewing a selection of shows that we've mostly had the chance to see, hopefully all of us on the panel, and hopefully most of you in the audience. Put your hands up if you've seen two or more of the exhibitions we're going to be talking about. Well, there we are. That'll keep the panel on the toes. Their toes, then. Very good to know. So the format is we're looking at five shows. We'll look at uh, two or three of them, um, and then uh, what, what I'll do is I'll have a PowerPoint presentation. We'll look at... a. Uh, uh, a show, talk about the show, then look at the next show, and then bring, have an opportunity to bring the audience in for, to let off some steam and share some of their insights and probe us with some questions, and then go back and look at the, the balance of the shows. Uh, so tonight I have a distinguished panel. Uh, I apologize to fellow feminists for the fact that it's an all-male panel. That is merely a quirk of uh, organization. Um, my, my quota of distinguished women sort of hemorrhaged on, in March, uh, which gives me an opportunity to say, don't forget to come back on March 14th, and don't, and don't let me conclude the evening without giving you details of March 14th. But um, I'd rather right now get down to uh, February the, whatever it is, 8th, and introduce my very distinguished panel. To my left, to my right, and uh, what looks like your left, uh, is Robert Storr, uh, the dean of the Yale School of Art, uh, uh, the, uh, the distinguished former curator at the Museum of Modern Art, the curator of the last installment of the Venice Biennale, and uh, a regular critic who has columns on art press in Paris and Frieze in London. London is the home of Barry Schwabsky, to my left, uh, who is a, a, a poet and a critic and a curator. He is the co-editor of International Reviews at Art Forum magazine, and his writing is also to be seen these days in The Nation. Uh, Barry has a new collection of poems coming out later this year from Black Square Editions. And uh, my third guest is James Gardner, James was previously art critic for the New York Post. He is architectural critic for the New York Sun, where his art criticism also appears. And he's the author of the book Culture or Trash from 1993. And uh, uh, 
he'll be able to draw, hopefully, on the expertise garnered from that book to tell us whether the shows we're looking at tonight are indeed culture or trash. So, um, one of, two other things to say. One is uh, two other thank yous to offer, which uh, pertain to, to what we're doing tonight. The first thank you is to Graham White, our very able recording engineer. Um, the review panels are recorded for posterity, and you can hear them at artcritical.com slash review panel, uh, where most of the previous 21 panels are there to be heard and enjoyed. And the other thank you is to my able assistant, Gabby Grodin, who will be um, uh, operating the uh, slideshow. So let's get going with our first exhibition, which is, in fact, the, 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 the twin exhibitions of Katie Grannon, one show down at Salon 94 Freeman in the burgeoning Lower East Side uh, Arts <laughs> District. And the second show uh, is at Greenberg Van Doren Gallery in 57th Street. So Rob, um, Katie Grannon is one of that distinguished group, the Yale Women Photographers, a group predating your time as dean there, of course, but the group that of uh, former students of uh, Gregory Crudson, who emerged in the uh, 1990s uh, to, 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 to overnight critical acclaim for the, and, and, and distinguish for these uh, generally very large photographs of generally rather sad-looking women in generally rather miserable environments. Um, how do you feel that Katie Grannon's last show... You don't think that's slightly prejudicing the case? How do you feel that... Uh, uh, Katie Grannon has turned out. I mean, this, this, what, what was your impression of this show in terms of its stature and impact? Well, I, I, I saw um, mostly reproduction, but some in the original of the earlier, well, actually two bodies of earlier work. Some was of mostly adolescent women, sorry, mostly adolescent women in interiors where you get some sense of what world they do come from. It's not actually always miserable at all. It's rather, uh, you know, well turned out uh, in many cases. And then also of people in natural environments um, that are you know, sort of equally direct but slightly more explicitly confrontational, I guess you'd have to say, uh, which I liked a lot. I must say I was not crazy about the show that I saw at um, Greenberg, and I'm interested in the other work, which I've seen only in book form. But um, I don't know. It's, um, it's as if she's trying too hard. <laughs> Um, and what happens is that the subject rules and the photographic part of it is much less interesting than it was. When there was a kind of balance between the act of looking in on somebody's life and their decisions about how to be available to the camera, there was, there was, there was a collaborative narrative, I guess you'd have to say, written into it. Um, there was tension in the photographs, and the act of relation you know, was charged with something. In this case, it's okay with me. I'm not shocked by it, certainly, but um, it's just not that interesting, the interplay, with the exception of the grin on the woman's face as she's writhing in the grass. I think that's pretty good. <laughs> Barry, uh, in the, the, the works are pretty powerful in terms of scale and um, uh, very artfully considered in terms of color. Do you, do you think she's trying too hard? Are we losing some of the potential human or documentary energy that the work might have had if she wasn't quote unquote trying so hard? Uh, yeah, I think I had sort of the, I think I sort of have a bit of the opposite feeling than Rob. Uh, I didn't know her work very well before. I had seen the, the show Another Girl, Another Planet, where she and the other um, Yale photographers that you alluded to 
kind of first became known. And I've seen some of her work since, but I had never really paid too much attention to it, to be honest. And uh, so I was quite surprised by the show, and I found that it uh, it it had a lot more impact on me than than I would have expected from what I knew of her earlier work. I thought that there was a very actually very interesting tension between the the three sitters or if that's the right word the three subjects and uh, and the photographer's gaze and um, complicated interplay between the sort of psychological aspects and then the more uh, formal ones that had to do with uh, just the, the incredible detail, the way um, in certain pictures you feel like you can sort of see every single grain of sand mm -hmm. individually or you see every uh, kind of um, freckle on uh, Nicole's skin in individually and uh, this way that, that she almost kind of... Uh, seems to dissolve them as individuals in that sense. Dehumanize and, and yet, them. And yet mm -hmm. they actually, quite the opposite, they come across uh, very forcefully um, as you know, quite human, almost tragic in a certain way, um, and, and very, very easy to empathize with. Yeah. Uh, James, how did you negotiate this, the, the difference between the kind of... Um, the, the cold, too much information, dehumanizing scale, and the kind of um, very literal presence that the, photo the photographs achieve? Well, I'm something of a formalist and a purist when it comes to art, to, to photography. So in a sense, I would have wanted there to be even more information, more granularity. I'm not sure that I felt that this was, the images were as perfectly achieved as they could have been. In terms of the subject matter and the interaction of the subject matter and the formalism, it seems to me that it had... Use the mic. Yeah, sorry about that. It seems to me that it had uh, elements of things that I'd seen before, the, the notion of photography not as a representation of reality but as a performative reenactment of it or simulacrum of it on one hand. Uh, then you also had the element of abjection running through so many of the images. And of course, neither of those uh, elements is especially newsworthy or new at this late date in the arc of postmodernist photography. I thought that there was, especially in some of the Gale and Dale images of the transsexuals, and especially the one where, which I, I guess you showed, of one of them holding the baby, there were elements of the spirit that you find in Matthew Barney, and I'm not too impressed by that, even when it's in Matthew Barney, so I'm certainly not going to be impressed by it when it's in someone else's work. So I guess I would have to dissent. What, what, What's what that elements? Spirit? What's that? <laughs> What is that uh, element? How would you define oh, it? Uh, a kind of alienated and postmodern, um, how shall I express it, 
a, a, a sense of some radical and destabilized oddity in the world, which I think is at the heart of Matthew Barney's stuff. And I should point out that probably, I don't know if the photographer has said this explicitly, but presumably at some level she feels as though what she's doing here, and this is something that Barry alluded to, is that she's humanizing the subjects, her sitters, if you will, and yet I feel that even though at one level that is what she appears to be doing, may be claiming to be doing, at a deeper level beyond perhaps her sense of what she's actually doing, she is holding them up for a kind of lurid display. That's an interesting... I, I think that depends a little bit on who your friends are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they, I don't think they need are. to be humanized. I think they're quite human, and I prefer those photographs to the ones on the beaches and so on. I think there, something comes through. I think it's, it borders on a certain kind of sentimentality in some ways, but it's, they're interesting and believable images as such. But one doesn't need to humanize transsexuals. They are human. <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't deny that. But I, I, I do feel that there is a sense in which she is... Your, your reaction, your interpretation of it is perfectly plausible, and that is presumably what she would acknowledge. But I think that at the same time, through the back door, as it were, there is a, a, a kind of délectation morose, a kind of prurience, a, uh, a, a freak show aspect to it, which is part of her intentionality. But again, I, I, the, the, that, I that element of, of stylized behavior is not alien to their humanity. It is, in fact, by choice, a part of it. Um, Greer Langton, who was photographed a great deal sure. by um, uh, Nan Golden, uh, who I knew uh, when he was actually not yeah. um, Greer Langton, um, you know, comes across very differently in his photographs mm -hmm. yeah. than these. And I think the problem here may be a kind of forma formality, not formalism, yeah. but a kind of formality that doesn't actually get you quite as close as you might in many yeah. of the images. Right. Yeah, but, but, I don't think, yeah. but I don't think that's, that is... Um, a kind of victimizing yeah, stylization. Okay. I, I feel actually you mentioned Golden that there's a there's an interesting contrast with Golden. I, I, I feel I mean I love Golden's work, but there's definitely a kind of um, uh, high octane glamorization in in Nan Golden's uh, <coughs> oeuvre, and and it makes it makes images which are highly wrought in a kind of fantasy fantasy way. I don't know about you, Barry, but I I find actually that there was something. Uh, odd, but in a good way, about the tension in Granon's work between um, a, a, a sort of literal documentary presence and a kind of strange sort of artifice going on. Yeah, I mean, I'm not such a big fan of Nan Colden, I guess. And um, I mean, their work is interesting, but I think uh, there is in in her pictures a sense of kind of trying to put you in the, as a viewer in the middle. Of of a situation, um, as if as if you were part of the crowd uh, going along for the party, mm -hmm. so to speak, and uh, there's nothing of that here. Mm. Um, it's it's all quite. Um, it's more Diane Arbus or Auguste Sander, isn't it? In a kind of cold clinical detachment, would you say? Well, not Sander because you know Sander kind of goes. Sandra finds types. She's, in a way, though, doing something that's the opposite but the same. She's inviting types. 
isn't she? I mean, Sander goes out systematically to find a farmer, a student, a this, a that. Um, uh, Granin is not going out to look for a transsexual or a um, uh, exhibitionist. She's putting an ad in the local paper and seeing what comes. And so in a sort of arbitrary process, she's getting self-elected types. But she's also following them, it seems, over a certain period of time. And so um, you're, you're not just, you're not seeing a moment in, in the self-presentation of these people. You're, you're seeing the changes that they could go through, you know, maybe even in a day, or, mm -hmm. or I don't know how long it is. Mm -hmm. but, um, mm -hmm. but there's a sense that um, they, have, they have many different masks, yes. and they also have many different ways of letting the masks slip. James, did you get the sense of the um, sitters being directed by the photographer or the photographer responding to the sitters? Well, I, th I sense that there was probably a bit of both, but getting back to the co comparison between Sander, August Sander, and her, I would say that in, the, in Sander's work, you have perhaps in its purest form the presentation of the sitter as he really was, if you'll accept that, as he or she really was, if you'll accept that term. In other words, it was an attempt on Zander's part to get the purest representation of the person, the specifics of the individual as well as the generality of that person's humanity. Here, by contrast, you have, as I was saying before, a performative element. There is something theatrical about it, which I think is directly antithetical to that. But with Sander, you never, I mean, for instance, Sander never shows you anybody in bed. I mean, he never shows you anybody relaxing on the beach. Sure. They're, they're, they are performing usually their profession, in fact. Uh, they are showing the role that they play yeah. in society. So uh, they're as performative as, as anything else. No, but there are scenes where a woman's, you know, her face is contorted. She's either acting or she... Uh, I forget exactly what you're talking about here. Nicole yeah, yeah, yeah. On, the, yeah. on the bed, on the bed, you know, the wig, yes. and, and she seems to be in labor. I assume that that was posed, right? Uh, well, she was pregnant at one point, and not at another. So, but I don't think she was literally giving birth in the photographs. Okay, so, yes. so, so that was <laughs> that was a performance. But, but to right? be, but there's, we're making a distinction between yeah. posing and being posed. I mean, that was yeah. No, 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 no. I, I agree with you well, as, as regards. But Rob, yes. interjected maybe yes. one other way of looking at them, um, and this is not just uh, from the vantage point of the dean of Yale, but from the vantage point of anybody who's been watching the evolution of photography in recent years, much of which has come out of Yale, is within that world, and it was true with the modern as well for that matter, um, there is the idea of formal uh, observation and composition, which is the ideas of Sarkowski and of uh, uh, Peter Galassi, Todd Papa George, lots of other people who engage in that, and there are ideas of the theatricalized photograph, which does not necessarily mean that the person sure in the center is the determining performer. It can be the, the setting up, the lighting, the whole. So. And these two things are in tension with one another, and they're interesting tensions. And maybe she, having come from a school which is, in a sense, divided between those two camps, but those two camps talk to each other. Therefore, they're in a, in a kind of interesting dialectical relationship. She's trying to chart this territory. So I'm sympathetic to these photographs, even when I don't particularly like parts of them. And I think you may see her as a kind of um, uh, litmus test of where that dialogue has developed to this point. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Great. Wonderful. I think we should move on to our next show now, which is William Kentridge at Marion Goodman. James, we see, we, see the, we see something of a polymath in this exhibition, don't we, in terms of uh, the diversity? You do. Uh -huh. Sorry? You do. Uh, well, one could. I, I wonder if, in addition to being a polymath, he is, as sometimes is the case with polymaths, a genius. What do you make of William Kentridge? Your article yesterday in the New York Sun was so persuasive that uh, I almost believed then, when I was reading it, that he was indeed a genius. You used that term. Uh, uh, before I had read your article, and now subsequent to your eloquence having worn off in the article, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not so sure. Uh, I, I've heard many people speak of William Kendridge in the highest terms, as you have done, and I just don't get it. He seems to me to be a charming person, a very nice man, an artist of certain abilities, but in terms of the overall consequence of what he does, he seems to me to be Alexander Calder of Calder's Circus, minus all the rest of it, which is what truly impresses me in Alexander Calder. You know, the, the, the extraordinary forms of his mobiles and stables and such. Uh, so he has. William Kentridge has succeeded in creating this uh, uh, alternate universe, right? And it is a charming universe. In addition to that, he has, I guess in a polymathic way, polymathic within the context of visual art, he has created, uh, he, he has used and has re resurrected all these superannuated forms like uh, anamorphic projections and such and stereoscopic images. All that is very charming. It's not unprecedented, but that doesn't matter. It is charming. I don't see that it goes much farther than that. I should say one good thing about him is that he's almost unique among contemporary visual artists who achieve any notoriety these days, that he still believes in something called the human condition. Now, back in 1950 or so in the post-war era, there were lots of people who believed in the human condition uh, to the point almost of platitude, people like Ben Shahn. But subsequent to that, and especially with the emergence of postmodernism, that interest in, that acknowledgement of the existence of the human condition has fallen very much by the wayside. So it's very nice to encounter someone who seems to believe in it so thoroughly and without irony. But the human condition is not a cause, it's a subject. I mean, uh, it's, strange, it's strange to hear somebody saying he believes in the human condition. I mean, he investigates the human condition. Okay, but, political. but, but you see, uh, I, I chose my words intentionally because yes. uh, my feeling is that it has fallen so far by the wayside that simply to deal with it in a forthright way yes. is almost to acknowledge it, to promote it polemically. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, I'd have thought K.T. Granin is dealing with the human condition, but, but as, me, as experienced by transsexuals and... Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. okay. Uh, Barry, we um, we, we've, we've got a, a big topic here now because we're, deep, we're, we're already debating two things. One is um, 
One is whether William Kentridge is a good thing and whether he's dealing with the human condition. And the other is whether this show is a, is is a good thing. Is the human condition a good thing? And is the human condition a good thing or should we hope to be transformed into stereoscopic animorphs? Um, take your pick, Barry. This show or Kentridge? Uh, I don't know. I'm already a stereoscopic animorph myself. So, um, but... Um, so maybe that is the human condition. No, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to deal with the human condition. I think there's... Uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm too postmodern for you, James. I, I can't deal with it. But um, the show... I mean, basically, uh, uh, you know, maybe to start from the bottom line and work my way up if I can. Um, I think what is really good in Kentridge's work are his films. And... Uh, I thought that the the film that was projected on the stereo, you know, whatever you call it, uh, anamorphic uh, thing, uh, was really beautifully done. He has, uh, and for sort of purely aesthetic reasons, I think he has a, a great sense of rhythm, of time, of, of how things shift and metamorphosize themselves and so on. Um, I think that's his great strength as an artist. I think that um, uh, as a draftsman for individual images, I've never been that interested in it. It always seems, uh, you know, there's this kind of style that he uses that's this kind of... Uh, uh, I would say not so much 50s, but actually kind of 30s. It's kind of, you know, kind of almost new masses kind of mm-hmm. illustration style, mm-hmm. uh, which somehow comes to life when he puts them into motion. Uh, but they don't, um, mm. they, they don't grab me visually right. uh, as, as, as still images. Yeah. So that, that's, that's kind of my bottom line on, on, yes. on the show and on, on Kentridge and his strength and weakness as an artist. I think, Rob, I'm generally in agreement with Barry in that um, my, my feeling with this show is that the, uh, is the, the sum was less than the individual parts, or, or rather that, the indivi- um, that, that, that this is a, a case where he's an artist who has proven himself in the past in his films as something tremendous and extraordinary, who seems to be giving us the, 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 the Kentridge official gift shop in this exhibition. That um, the full range, you know, you can have the etchings, you can have, uh, this, is, this, is what they, this is what they look like as anamorphs, this is what they look like as stereoscopes, I can even do a tapestry, here are some sculptures. It's, it's, it seemed to be, um, I, seemed, I, was, I was bewildered as to the point of it. I, I really just wanted, uh, one decent movie would have done it for me and, and keep the rest. Um, is that harsh? What happens to somebody who makes great, great films and just doesn't want to be pigeonholed as a filmmaker. I guess what he does is he becomes an opera producer. But what, what, what do you make of this show in relation to Kentridge's achievement? Well, if you believed in my genius, I'd look out. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think I share some of the same opinions. I look at him from a different angle, perhaps, um, given those opinions. I think James is actually correct about the humanist tradition. I think that Barry's correct about the sort of new masses kind of drawing. Uh, it was interesting. I went to see Mary Frank's show, which does not have animation, which has some of that as well. 
uh, and an artist who's made extraordinary work. Her strength is ceramics more so than painting and drawing, but some of the same qualities and some of the same intensity of experiences in that work. And I thought that here's an artist who is basically lost in the shuffle now, uh, but you know is showing at the same time as Kentridge and uh, largely doesn't get the time of day in the press uh, and that Kentridge does. Now that's, as we know, partly a matter of when you enter on the scene, how much people become accustomed to you, a whole strew of things. Uh, but there's a large irony here because Kentridge is very popular with the postmodernist crowd that James disparages. Uh, and uh, that group of people, oddly enough, are interested in him for what is, I think, a kind of unresolved balance of their own affinities. On the one hand, their formalism, because most of these people are fundamentally formalists, uh, and the other hand, their politics, uh, which means that they are mostly on the left. And Kentridge's work is about mostly South Africa, about racism, apartheid, the aftermath of apartheid, about the wandering Jew in a sense in South Africa, all a series of very powerful and very unresolved issues. Uh, and on the other hand, he is enormously inventive in one area, which is the, the filmic part of it, and also very engaged in another, which is theater. And I saw him do his Ubu Wa uh, version uh, as the Ubu Wa and the Truth Commission. I saw his Zeno uh, uh, piece in uh, Documenta, which was a theater thing based on Svevo. Uh, and there again, even that Ubu and Svevo are classic modernist texts okay. revived. So if you think of him as a kind of interesting combination of new masses, as you say, of uh, post-war humanism, Leon Golub could be here, or Nancy Spiro is here, um, but I mean a, a language of that type, uh, mixed with an, an affinity for early modernist uh, absurdist things. It's a very, very fertile combination. And out of that drops some stuff that doesn't work, and out of it drops some stuff that works marvelously well and truly we have not seen. So again, I would, I would refrain, as with Katie Granite, from drawing conclusions and applying uh, quick snap judgments and simply say, you know, uh, what is it, Pound says, what thou lovest will uh, remains all the rest is dross. Yes. Well, we can go home now. <laughs> <laughs> we could. We could. <laughs> but I think you've hit on a very important point with Kentridge, which is nostalgia. Uh, the music often is uh, derived from kind of uh, historic sources and is often a kind of very stirring kind of anthem from mm -hmm. so fascistic anthems often used. Well, that's the only case of that, actually. That's a specific Italian fascist yes. anthem from, from the war. But he has a modern composer with whom he works the most, and that's, that's the, 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 yes. the core of it. Yes, yes. But even the modern composer uh, is using kind of choral... Um, uh, elements and and tonalities, which I think are, are modalities, which are very um, beautiful music. I love the music, but it's it's a very stirring and in some ways nostalgic music. I think elegiac. I think it's elegiac. Okay, but I, I'm going to stick with nostalgic because I think <laughs> well, that it ties in with other aspects of the work. Well, which yes. As for music, I, I was thinking as I was looking at one of the anamorphic things that turned around, spun around. I was affected by that piece and I enjoyed it, but how much would I have enjoyed it if it hadn't been accompanied for the music with by the music? How, well, that's part how, of his aesthetic decision right, to give you right. the music. Yeah, you I, could look I, at a painting by Michelangelo and say, I, 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 "Would I have enjoyed it so much if he left out the limbs or something?" It's, it, <laughs> well, it, this well, is well, the <laughs> this is a sum total. I mean, I don't, can no, we no, I understand. Yeah, uh, but in 
Now, now, this is obviously a question that goes to the heart of postmodernism, so I don't want to raise it because I don't want to take this too far afield. But in terms of... Uh, are, we're here, presumably, talking about visual art, and we yes. are appreciating him, whether we acknowledge it or not, as a visual artist rather than as really rather than as a filmmaker or an animation artist, okay? We, we see him as well, that, that a visual art. artist. And to get back to something that Barry was saying, if, if one looks, uh, I don't know that Barry would have shared, th would share this opinion, but if you look at his uh, traditional artistic <laughs> artifacts, his drawings, his, mm. his charcoals, his sculptures, to me, those are sort of underwhelming if one removes from them certain things that okay. one used to consider artistically. Well, yes. Well, but wait a second. First of all, we are not doing anything. We're disagreeing is the whole point. That's why we're here. Sure. Um, so uh, sure. number two, he is an artist. He is an artist who makes art in multiple forms, often in multiple forms at the same time. Right. And you can't separate out one thing that he's put in and say, let us judge him by one quality. He makes drawings that he calls drawings for projection. Sure. The drawings, most of them, are made in sequence on a single surface or a couple of related surfaces. Uh, they are blown away in order to make the next one and the uh, next one and the next one. That is his art form. Sure, sure. Uh, and I do think sometimes that the individual, uh, if you will, stills, film stills, yeah. are less impressive, but not yeah. always, are less impressive than that. But for example, supposing uh, we had watched Giacometti erase things. Right. What would it have been like to see erasure happen as opposed to see its effects only? In a way, what Kentridge has done is to enter into that territory of the obfuscation or disappearance of image and give us the record of it and its then uh, reformation or re reconcretization in a new image. That is extraordinary. And he does it so beautifully. If it was just a trick, we wouldn't look at it more than once. That's the fact right. that it works over and over and over again means there's something about his drawing as drawing that cannot exist in still images and has never existed in any other form. But that's why the films are so unique and particularly special in Kentridge. But it's the drawing that does it. It's but, a, but it's a symbi drawing, no, I think it's a symbiosis. The camera, the camera is present, mm -hmm. but it's the activity of drawing for... Again, he's drawing what, for projections. The drawings the, exist. But the fact that the projections are more exciting, and I think we all agree on this, generally speaking, than the stills, means that it, it's unhelpful to an appreciation of Kentridge to try to make a, a spurious distinction between the finished product, which is a film of drawings, and drawing as an activity per se. What I would say is that in the animated films of the drawings and the process of erasure, he's found a language which is, was particularly poignant to his historical and political concerns. Mm -hmm. And that in the, in, he's, he seems to be grappling for another good, special, clever thing to do with drawings other than just draw. And his current way of, uh, his current solution is, project, is to create anamorphic drawings which are then uh, resolved in some kind of uh, mirror situation. This seems to me pure trickery that doesn't do anything. Mm. Doesn't, okay. How does that relate to the trickery, experience? Trickery. All, 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 all it is trickery. Um, no. Yeah, but how, okay, take, but take, tell, let me give another comparison. Another comparison would be Ilya Kabakov. Ilya Kabakov is a man with a very big theme. Ilya Kabakov is a graphic artist predominantly. Uh, who then developed his work in theatricalized contexts, which were installation and performance combined. 
Ilya Kabakov is a man with a subject, which was basically late Soviet Russia in the way that Kabakov, I mean, the way that uh, Kentridge is a subject is is late apartheid. Um, both of them think in allegorical terms. Both of them have larger themes, which in the earlier subject-based work were present, and now they're extracting them and trying to replace them. The fact that all the work is not successful seems to me uh, much less important than the level of ambition, and the level of ambition is huge, and the accomplishment overall is really big. But wouldn't it, would it help uh, Kentridge if, if we critics who love his work told him why it is that the films are doing better than the anamorphic projections? Anybody? I don't think he listened to us. But, um, <laughs> but, he can, but, 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 but what I would say in, in terms of this comparison, I just want to go to this comparison between Kabakov, or I guess we should say the Kabakovs, and uh, Kentridge, is that um, to my mind, Kabakov has really developed uh, an incredibly coherent uh, sense of what is an installation? What is a painting and, and what can be done with it in, in his terms? Uh, so that even though he, uh, you're absolutely right that he's somehow in, he's fundamentally a graphic artist, he's, he's intellectually extrapolated mm -hmm. from that in, in a way that just seems to me to be actually incredibly um, well-founded at, at almost every step. Uh, somehow I have this sense that, um, for better or for worse, Kentridge doesn't, doesn't work like that and doesn't think like that. He seems to be going much more kind of almost by the skin of his teeth and just saying, well, you know, uh, you know what can I do with sculpture out of this other stuff that I'm thinking about? And I don't think he's, uh, I don't get the sense that he's actually as intellectual about his, his artistic means. Okay, but what do we know about him? We know that he has had a long career. We know he did things before. We know that artists double back on untested possibilities. We know that he's made very beautiful puppets in order to do his performances. Mm -hmm. We know that when he's made them into sculpture, they sometimes work and they sometimes haven't. And now we also, since we know he's interested in early moderns, we know he's actually talking to Picasso. And he's trying to figure out how to make a Picassoid. Uh, sculpture in his own idiom to his own purposes, and I don't frankly think that the nose things are as strong. Uh, Jörg Immendorf did a, uh, a version of the nose which was wonderful, um, and I don't think so far, at least from what one can tell, this is as strong. But this is this is what ambitious artists do. They try and fail, and they try and fail twice, and they try and they succeed. Well, that's the, the onus of genius to allow him that space, and... Um, uh, the, those of us who love him will, and those of us who yeah. don't might not. Okay. Just let me make a concluding point. I think there's a tendency in criticism to equate ambition with the achievement of that ambition, and ambition is good, and his ambitions, which are, I guess, as I was saying before, something of a vaguely humanist nature, are good ambitions to have, but I'm perhaps less certain than other people here that he has come even close to their realization. And I would make a pedantic observation on, on Rob's comment that, yes, Kabakov was interested in late Soviet, uh, the, the, the absurdity of bureaucracy, yeah. and it was something he was making that was uh, absolutely of his time. Uh, Kentridge, um, who's only like 10 years older than me, he's a man in his 50s, right? Kentridge was really actually making films, almost having a nostalgia for the 
more extreme indignation of an earlier apartheid no, rather well, than all, dealing with the apartheid all, of his, his time. Parents, thus both, his use of historical music, he, he, thus his use yes, of a second, his 1930s parents were characters. His parents were lawyers for people being persecuted by apartheid. He grew up in this. Yes. He's not looking back at a glorious art. He's not looking back at a glorious past that he didn't participate in. He is looking at something he experienced thoroughly. Um, I would just say he's not a genius. I don't believe in genius, but I do think he's a really extraordinary artist. Great. Let's have something from the audience, both on Katie Grannon and on uh, William Kentridge, whichever you... Let's actually start with Grannon. So hold back if you have something to say about Kentridge, but do you wish to share some thought or question on Katie Grannon? Uh, yes. Uh, wait for the mic, if you would, Alexei. I was struck by Rob's observation about that single photograph of the woman laughing in the grass. And I missed the, I didn't do my homework on the Grand End show, so I'm speaking out of ignorance. But it seemed to me, I've seen earlier work and seeing and these images just now, that struck me as utterly different in impact from all the other images. It seems that the kind of negotiation, the combination of mistrust and and maybe a, a kind of ideology of these people matter or whatever, all that stuff got kind of blown away by that one image where a kind of unfakeable, strange hilarity ruled the picture. And I, I'm curious about um, that picture, is that an indicator of her best work or is that a kind of aberrant, odd, uh, outlier picture? And maybe, maybe also that, uh, as a kind of larger question, how critics deal with um, un unrepresentative high points. Yes. Any any other questions, comments on on Granin? I, I think yes. There are some hands at the back. Yes. I I just like to make a comment because um, my feeling about her work is that it's totally manipulated. She controls everything. And I think when you have work like that, which is not documentary at all, but in fact manipulated, whether or not you have an eager participant or an exhibitionist who's working with you hand in glove, um, you're controlling everything. And so I think aspects of how tight she is with her shot, where her light is, um, all those things we have to look at formalistically. And I think this is very uneven work. Some of the images formally are fabulous the lighting, the expression, uh, what, you, what you see there. And some of it is so contrived, the sand on the face, the manipulation of the figure, how you want to deal with dirt and um, environment and those things. It's, I found it really uneven. Okay. Um, yes, uh, lady at the back who looks remarkably like Jeannie Greenberg, her, <laughs> the artist's agent, but we'd love to hear from her as well. Great. I thought I'd first react to that. Um, first of all, they are not manipulated photographs. Katie is, um, uh, first, the Nicole, who is a prostitute, um, and throughout the three years of photographing her, did get pregnant. Um, she was a drug addict when Katie met her. She was looking for models and saw her from across the street and thought she looked like an, um, actually like a transgendered person, uh, woman, and she approached her to take her photograph. She became very involved in, with her life, and uh, she has since gotten off of drugs, 
Um, she is a shapeshifter. She's a Cindy Sherman type, this uh, Nicole, where every time Katie did see her, she was wearing a different outfit. And um, those are actually very natural poses. Those are Nicole rather than Katie. And that's why they appear so different than her earlier pictures that were a lot more posed or that Katie controlled the pictures a lot more. Um, Gail and Dale started out with, um, with Katie having the idea of the end of the movie, uh, uh, Who's Afraid of Baby Jane, where Betty Davis is walking down the street. And um, she was very curious about aging and old age. And having moved to San Francisco, that transgendered pair, they're not a couple, um, she, she became very involved with. And they wanted to participate in the fantasy of being photographed. And they wanted to um, dress for Katie. They wanted to put on what they believed was uh, you know, their form of what a middle-aged woman might wear. And um, so th those are very, very natural pictures. And Katie became so involved with them that the last picture in the series is Katie, in fact, giving her own baby to Dale. And there's that picture of, and in the exhibition of Dale in a white dress holding Katie's baby. These are also a lot about the relationship between the artists and their subject, and which is very different than okay. her earlier pictures who were strangers. So okay. I just thought I'd make Thank that you. comment. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great. And, that, and anybody have some comments on, on William Kentridge that they would like to uh, share? Any feedback from, from our debate about Kentridge, his humanism, his, uh, his uh, genius, his movement into new mediums, and, uh, and, and his greatness, and otherwise? Nobody? Yes, uh, Devon. Um, just, I was surprised no one on the panel talked about that all of the work in the Kentridge show was about, uh, it, it presented as there was no straight way to view the art. I mean, it was always either a stereograph or a, through a vent. I mean, as if there's no straight on view. And that seemed to be the underlying text of the show, uh, I, regardless of how I felt about the individual drawings, which I tend to feel they weren't so strong. I didn't feel that in a way it was about the drawings. It was about the inability to have a linear view of the work. That, I think it's a very good point. That, that, was, what the, uh, that was what the press release uh, for the gallery said. But uh, in fact, if they had taken out about two thirds of the work, it would have been so. In fact, the majority of works were Plain Static. old sculptures, plain old drawings, and uh, then, in addition to that, there were the works that did deal with the stereoscopic views and with the anamorphic things and and so on. But um, I, I, the the show would have had to have been edited much more ruthlessly in order to to actually uh, focus on that as the as the specific theme of the show. I think. More on Kentridge? Anyone else like to share with us? Um, speak now or forever hold your peace? Or become a critic? Which indeed many of you are. It's very uh, flattering and gratifying to see so many former and future uh, review panel 
um, panelists uh, with us this evening. Uh, They're going to yes. our ass when they get home. Yes. <laughs> uh, wait for the mic, if you would, at the front, please. Alexi Worth, the former panelist. Thank you. Um, I was exhilarated by the Kentry show and um, agreed with the, spirit, the comments in the spirit and that were, came closer to that spirit. I felt like I was in the presence of just a, a large, such a large, serious mind. And um, that doesn't necessarily address the question of where the achievement is, although I, I certainly feel enormous admiration for it. But um, the Kabakov um, connection, I, I felt, um, was illuminating. My own feeling is sometimes that we don't, that Kentridge is still growing. And, and that, this, this exhibition um, made me feel that too, that the work is reaching out in new directions. Picasso, as Rob mentioned, I don't know it well enough to know whether, I, I think there's other little Picasso moments earlier, but not maybe as, as ardently. But I, I'm, um, I'm curious, I feel like Kentridge is someone that I, it's hard to understand the films, I, I certainly haven't seen them as many times as I feel like I probably would need to to really um, sink my teeth into them. I think that slows down the reception of Narsten. and he's a kind of late starter in some ways, despite having had this long career. I wonder whether there are other people to, other people or touchstone points that would help explicate and open up the work, and whether um, any of the panelists agree with this thing I'm throwing out about that we're surprisingly early. He's so what he's in his 50s that we're at, at still a kind of upward opening out moment in the trajectory of the career. Yes, do. I think one thing that hasn't really been said, and I say this partly speculatively but partly with some knowledge, um, you know, he is an artist from Africa. He's an artist from authoritarian government in South Africa where access to international contemporary art was quite limited for a very long time. Um, Greenberg and uh, the uh, Triangle Workshop made certain, uh, you know, um, a beachhead, if you will, for a certain kind of abstraction in South Africa uh, before the end of apartheid and thereafter and so on. But for a long time, there wasn't a lot available. And I, he has spoken and described being very interested in German expressionist prints. Uh, and part of this may simply be growing up in an environment where there happened to be some. Part of it may be that there may not have been much else either. Uh, and so there's the question of delay and reception that we have to consider. If we're meeting an artist for the first time who seems to have our experience but actually doesn't, who is an African artist, although a white African artist, then our measurements of where he is or where he should be have to be recalibrated to where he comes from and what he was actually thinking about before he showed up here. Well, that's... Uh, that's very generous and accommodating um, and view. And it's not to say it's not to say it's not to say that he's behind. Yeah, but it's not to say that he's behind the star in, in the art scene. Yeah, but it's not to say that he, no. he travels around the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not to say he's not a poor country here. Well, come on. It, 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 if you if you if you had uh, assimilated postmodernism as quickly as all that, you'd be further forward too. But um, no, no, <laughs> no. But I am a country I, I, so okay, that's, no, that's I'm just, but, but I'm just trying to I'm not trying to make apologies for him. I'm trying to say mm. there's a really different cultural experience, and mm. the fatigue people may experience here with yes. certain kinds of humanist 
uh, you know, figuration may not be the fatigue that well, other people experience in other contexts. And uh, to mention again, Leon Golub. Yeah. You know, Leon Golub has come and gone and come and gone and come and gone. He's a perennial yeah. of a certain kind of yes. aesthetic practice. And other people are coming and going in, in, in a but different actually, pattern. The, the beauty of the world before we had globalization is that precisely because countries were developing at different speeds, that when one supposedly sophisticated advanced center got fatigued by something as, as important as mm -hmm. James identifies uh, the human condition as being, you, it's, you're suddenly rejuvenated by a, a younger individual or country who says, who's, who's dealing with the basic thing is it's like it's like finding a vintage car in Cuba that's still in great working order. You know, suddenly you've got something. It's it's rejuvenation, and that's that's the beauty of of, of internationalism. But I come back to this. I'll, I'll come to you, Svetlana. I promise. But I come back to this. Look, um, we can make whether we're making excuses for him or not because he's from South Africa or whatever. Or the the, the truth is this. He was onto something so amazingly great yes. with animated films, with charcoal, pentimenti drawings. The, the, the symbiosis of film and drawing was so unique. He's jettisoned, he seems to have jettisoned Sorry. film in favor of an extraordinarily weird, anachronistic um, uh, conceit from the Renaissance in anamorphism. Um, maybe anamorphism could be the brilliant way forward, but could somebody who loves those anamorphs tell me why the language and political and philosophical preoccupations of William Kentridge are advanced by anamorphism. Okay, two more. Polka and David Sally are working with anamorphism. Polka brilliantly, David Sally somewhat laboriously, but anamorphism <laughs> is not over. Uh, there was a very great book written by Bellostratus on anamorphism, which has had a powerful impact on many people's thinking. The fact that it was a, a, a thing much done in the sort of mannerist period doesn't mean it's it's done. <laughs> but that's such right. a formalist answer, Rob. I didn't say to you, is there any life in, in anamorphism? I said specifically <laughs> for William Kentridge. How is anamorphism helping William Kentridge? How did this show help you to a deeper understanding of his project through anamorphism? Well, Jessica Morgan called me a formalist in art form recently, and that would be really news to uh, Clement Greenberg. But anyway, um, no, um, the rediscover of formal potential is interesting. And what does the anamorphic thing allow him to do? It allows him to change the space of the film. If you have in previous film essentially a projection forward in a theatrical environment in which you have teasers and things above and boom, 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 which is also his operas and also all of that, the anamorphic space is 360. And so images appear and disappear, and the space becomes much more complicated. That's what anamorphism does. You see that bird appear one way flattened out and emerge and then disappear. So it, it is not formalism. It is a formal new dimension to the work, and it's there to be explored. He could do this in large scale, not just small scale. Can I say one thing about uh, animation, which, uh, uh, which you brought up? It, the premise of everything that we've been saying thus far is that there is something radically original not only in his worldview, but formally in his cinematography, in his, in his animation. I don't want to deny that he is a, an original animator, but much of what uh, one might consider original in his animation is original by comparison with, say, Pixar or Disney or something like that. But even his animation, in a sense, is retarded at this point because it looks back not necessarily to 
the 20s or the 50s, but to a whole lot of Soviet block animation, which was going on in the 60s, 70s, by people whose names, frankly, I forget. But that kind of rough-hewn, uh, that kind of rough-hewn depiction of the things drawn, the, 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 the almost intentional embrace of the flirtation with a kind of amateurism which is so essential to Kentridge's uh, rough-hewn... Why call uh, it amateurism? Why not call it handmaidness? Okay, all right, fine. That's right. It is handmaidness. So so, so, so anyway, uh, that certainly is not unprecedented. There is a whole tradition of that. And I think that from what we were saying about his political circumstances and uh, his being perhaps in a delayed development because he grew up in South Africa, that's a little bit similar, whether one accepts that or not, that's a little bit similar to the relation of Soviet bloc countries to what we call the artistic mainstream in America and Europe in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that sort of thing. Okay, now Svetlana, did you want to come in? Okay, fine. So we're gonna move on to the last three shows that we're looking at, which are all painting shows. Um, and let's see first the work of Freilicher, Jane Freilicher, showing at Tibor Denage. Um, James, as a formalist concerned with the human condition, does Freilicher <laughs> address, uh, address it, does Freilicher do it for you? Well, I, I'd say that of the five, exhibi- uh, the five artists whom we are discussing uh, today, she's the one who meets with my my fullest approval relative to the others at any rate. I think she's a very good artist, and I say that almost in spite of myself because I don't quite understand how she succeeds to the extent that she does. So many of the terms of her art are old at this point, and old not in any charming way. They're old in the sense of being almost weary, superannuated. And in terms of her application of those things, which so many artists before her have done so well, there is a kind of hit or miss feeling to the way she proceeds. And what's mysterious about her is that she hits as often as she does, and that occasionally she hits home. So that really impresses me. If you look at some of the paintings, like, you know, if you look at the flowers in the vase there that we saw a few minutes ago, a few seconds ago, that clearly has somewhere there uh, Redon's images and maybe even a little Fontaine Tour. And yet, so even though you know exactly what she's up to, she manages to create something that's very beautiful, uh, but she doesn't always do it because uh, she, she's a very intuitive artist and uh, so she occasionally misses. But I would say that on, on balance, I'm very happy to have hmm. seen this exhibition. Great. Barry, what was your response? The thing that I like about her paintings, or at least some of them, uh, I, I think that what, somehow what seemed to be most characteristic of her is this device of having the still life mm-hmm. and then the uh, view out into the distance and um, so she seems to want to have things that are both kind of, uh, you know, kind of haptically accessible, 
you know, that are very close to you, and uh, then other things that are sort of ungraspable and uh, and kind of becoming purely atmospheric, and there's no kind of somehow there's no middle ground uh, between them. You just suddenly find yourself going back and forth between these two uh, very distant realms uh, without quite knowing how you get there. And um, there, there is something quite, um, the, there can be something quite mysterious about that, um, I find. Uh, but, and, you know, she has, she has a really uh, wonderful kind of light touch in terms of how she kind of uh, puts the, the paint down and kind of conjures atmosphere. On the other hand, I find that there's something kind of, you know, they, they can just kind of be quite flat uh, quite in, heavy, in, yes. in terms of their composition hmm. um, and, yeah. and kind of almost uh, seemingly intentionally awkward or naive mm -hmm. looking yes. in, in ways that are kind of injurious. I found the, the I found myself wanting some more awkwardness than, than Freiletcher was giving me. Um, I've always sort of wanted to admire her a little more than I find I do. It's, it's interesting... The painting I liked best was the one of the swimming pool because that really did give us uh, a kind of weird flatness and an odd shape. And I thought at last some, some real meat, that some, some, some kind of humor there. That um, it's, it's odd that somebody, somebody, a painter, for instance, who's very close to her would be someone like Lois Dodd. And yet I get such an entirely different sensation from Dodd than I do from Freilich. And that makes me wonder why exactly. Is it really just temperament? Because they do come out of a similar generation, a similar... Uh, cultural milieu, and yet, uh, and and they are both willing to go against the grain in producing easel paintings of actual subjects that they're observing. So they're clearly kind of sisters under the skin, and yet the the result seems so so radically at odds. It seems that Freilicher is about little sensations on the surface, whereas you mentioned the word composition. Dodd is really so much more about a, a highly eccentric, idiosyncratic way of of seeing the world. I find after Dodd and also, of course, after Alex Katz, which is so close to formally at a certain point, these seem rather just a too, little too conservative. Am I, am I missing something, Rob? Hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I have to, what should I say? Um, the people you mentioned, uh, and it's also Porter, it's also uh, Robert Dash, it's also Dara Park, there's a whole group of painters and, and Neil Blaine. There's a whole group of painters who came out of a certain moment in the 50s where the thought was the most radical thing to do would be to do something that didn't seem to be ambitious but that uh, enjoyed all the potentials of painting and observation. Uh, and they have developed in unequal ways and done the unequal bodies of work. But it is, in fact, a, a whole current of American post-war art. Uh, it was an oppositional current to a certain extent because it was not doing what history mandated. Uh, it was in sympathy with what history had been up until then. All of them knew the abstract expressionists. All of them learned things about painting from them. Uh, and so, and um, you know, Bob Berlin's another part of this whole broad group. And I find myself repeatedly interested in these paintings because they lack pretension, they provide, as you say, sensation, sometimes little ones, sometimes big ones, uh, but they are paintings that are unembarrassed to take uh, this 
proposition on as distinct, and this is where the oppositional part, not just as distinct to a certain kinds of abstraction, but as distinct from really academic realism of which mm -hmm. there has always been a lot, often proficient, almost universally deadly. Uh, yes. And they were interested in the life force of observation and what was around them. So when I look at Friedrich's paintings, and I just I got the book the other day uh, from the gallery and looked at it, you know, I, I'm reminded of things that I've seen, uh, some of which I actually remember specifically, other which I've forgotten that seemed exciting. I was interested actually that Tom Noskowski wrote a text for it, and Tom's a painter I, I really believe in. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting that he feels in dialogue with her, which is not an expected thing from my point of view. Um, so at this show, what I look at is the production of an artist who is... Uh, doing what she does constantly. Mm -hmm. And there's this one that I'd like to take home. There's that one that I would be probably interested in seeing out of the corner of my eye in somebody's house and a bunch of them that don't mean much to me. Well, I think that's the best that any any painter could probably ask for. Yeah. The one that we want to take home. There's certainly two or three I would love to have taken home. The ones with the transcriptions in them, I think, are just joyful, excellent pictures. Gentlemen, if you don't mind, we're going to press on and have a look at our... Uh, <coughs> last two shows, and then we'll perhaps discuss them concurrently. Um, so let's look at uh, uh, Jason Martin. This yeah. is uh, Ellen. No, Chris Martin. <laughs> this, is Ellen, the... this is Ellen Birkin. Sorry. Ellen is that... Birkin oh, yes. Here she is. Ellen Birkin. <laughs> Birkin Blit. <sighs> okay. Actually, I'm going to reverse my decision, and we are going to look at one show at a time. So thanks. Barry, what did you make of uh, this show and, and, and Birkenblitz's um, decision to uh, give us, in each canvas, the same face? Um, I was, I have to say, I was uh, initially really taken aback by it. I mean, that face is in every one of her canvases, pretty much, anyway. Anyway, but uh, not, not in this way that it was here. And I, I have to tell you that... Um, you know, of course, you go into every show. If you know if the artist is familiar to you or whatever, you, you go into it with a certain prejudice about whether you're going to like it or not like it. Um, I I love Ellen Birkenblitz's paintings. I'm like crazy about them, and so I went into this show thinking, "Oh wow, you know, I can't wait to see the show." And I walked in, and I was kind of like, "Huh," uh, because uh, I was so kind of almost dumbfounded to see this face as being really the focus uh, of the paintings repeatedly throughout the room and it was almost like I couldn't see anything but that and it was such a change from the direction that I had seen her painting going in for some years before that where it was getting into this kind of crazy abstraction that the face and the other kind of images were, were almost lost in. Um, so it really took me a little bit of getting used to, and um, in a in a sense, uh, uh, I, I and I might not have taken the trouble to get used to it if I didn't already, you know, have this uh, kind of history with with her work. Um, but um, in a strange way, I did find that with uh, just spending some time with them that the repetition of the face kind of dropped out and I began to see them almost as, uh, you know, as kind of abstract paintings. And then I, I looked at the, the titles and, and they're actually kind of titled like abstract paintings. They kind of remind me of 
almost 60s color field titles, Mars Bar Avenue, and then, you know, there's one called Horses on a Hill that has no horses in it, or Heart Shape that has no heart shape in it. So, um, so she's definitely also there kind of signaling you away from putting any particular reading on, on what this face is about, I uh, think. James, apart from the repetition of the face, we also have the, the stark reduction of uh, uh, color in that it's black and white and shades between. Um, did, the, did the use of black and white, um, Barry has mentioned abstraction, did the, the use of black and white in any way put you in mind of uh, um, that, that period of black and white of de Kooning or of Jackson Pollock? Or, or what do you think that black and white meant here? Well, I was wondering that, and I don't know. I would say that to to interpret it as Barry does in purely, or or to go in the direction of interpreting it in primarily abstract terms is probably more generous than I'm prepared to be. Uh, I, I think that that would be, if one accepted that, probably the best case one could make for the art. I confess that I, this is of the artist whom we we're dealing with today. She is the one whom I knew least, and so I have to confess my first exposure to her was this exhibition. So I didn't have the benefit of seeing other things she had done in the flesh. Through the miracle of a Google search, I did manage to see some other things which did have a lot more color in them. And my feeling was that those, shall we say, polychrome works of hers were much better or, or seemed much more promising from the strength of the reproductions than these did. They did seem to me boring because of that repetition and boring in a sort of bad way because... As opposed to boring in a good way? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it, you could argue that in a sense Ad Reinhardt is boring in a good way because it, it, in terms of the manifest content of his work, it's, or at least his black paintings, obviously they're not all the same, but in one sense they're all the same, and then you see the significant different dif differentia among them. Here, there are some obvious differences among the canvases, the paintings, but I didn't find that they were especially interesting. I would have been perhaps a little more impressed if uh, they had more color. She was in the East Village show at the, the great at the, oh. the new muse the new museum when it was at the the Chelsea Museum I guess right. in 2005. So uh, I gather that she at some point you, you can see that there's a strong graffiti element in her aesthetic. So I assume that at some point early in her career she was a full participant in the East Village scene and that whole populist aesthetic. What struck me about these paintings was that all the, the, the East Village scene was probably the last movement that was in art that was unapologetically joyous, right? And so perhaps... Maybe from New York perspective, I think if you go to the West Coast, there have been more recent manifestations of... Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Okay, yeah. okay which invoke yes. what the East Village was, yeah. But in terms of large-scale movements, uh, I, I would say that the East Village scene was, as far as I know, the, the most joyous of recent movements. Yes. But here she has 
almost as though because it's no longer fashionable to be joyous or even to be happy if you're doing contemporary art, uh, she, she seems to have yeah. gone into, <laughs> she, it's almost as though she, she's like Goya in the sense that he went wow. into a black period, yes. but he did it going transi- in a transition from old master ancien regime painting to something like proto-romanticism. In her case, she's gone from one form of graffiti to another, but it's a black huh. phase of yeah. graffiti. Her work never had anything to do with graffiti, though. I, I know, but it's clearly based... I mean, the aesthetic is... Not necessarily. I think it's as much from de Kooning as graffiti, I think. Oh, that, no, but I mean, if, if you look at other East Village, you, you can mm. clearly see the, in, in... Well, it, it's quite clear. I remember to me, her yeah. work in, in the East Village. It didn't have anything to do with that. Okay, well, it does now. It does yes. now. She's catching up with her lost youth, and it, no, it, is what James is suggesting. I... I, I radically disagree with James on this. Uh, I, I found these to be uh, formerly very ambitious paintings. At first, they do have a, a homogene, homogene... They do all look the same. But um, when you spend time with them, there's, there seems to be an individual tone and tenor to each work. At first, it was a, an affront that it was the same face in each work. Then it became clear that the, the face was both... Uh, a pretty face to be looking at, and, and and at the same time a sort of very dumb, cartoony face. But it was just a vehicle for a kind of movement that was putting me in mind of the very late paintings of de Kooning, and just as the way the way the black and uh, white was putting me in, the, in 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 a sense of the the early sort of excavation period. And I found that um, these were these seemed to be. I'm, this is just a highly subjective interpretation. I didn't research her intentions, but the paintings seemed to the intentionality within the paintings seem to me to suggest somebody who is um, immersed in a, in a pop culture idiom who's, who's breaking down and searching within that for um, compelling uh, expressive possibilities with the hand. Can with I ask hand. you a question about that? Yeah. Or just in terms of a comparison? Yes. Would you com- how would you compare that in any way with um, Joyce Pensato's? Very, work? very interesting comparison. As soon as I went over the road and saw Joyce Pensato, I thought, damn, I could have done these two shows together. That would have been a perfect, perfect pairing. And if Joyce's show had been continued for another week, I think I'd rather perhaps put her on the panel than, than, uh, than, than Burke and Blit. But, you know, um, good point of comparison. I don't know if anyone saw that show, but an older artist who's using uh, uh, cartoon imagery in relation to very large, very gestural, very energetic abex kind of paintings. Um, but I think they, they revealed the difference of their generation and generational ambitions. I think there's something uh, slicker and cuter about Burke and Blit, and, and there's something more uh, political and um, more to do with the human condition uh, in, in uh, Joyce Pensato. What would you say, Rob? Well, I was going to mention Joyce also, um, who I think is very interesting, period, and interesting by comparison, so that makes three of us. Um, I think she's just an awful lot better as a painter. Um, and I think also that Sue Williams, up and down, is better as a painter. And I think the, uh, the ability to take some kind of relatively um, codified image mm. 
-hmm. and run changes on it where the changes are not just the graphic changes but where they're also then changes in surface changes in how the picture comes together is where the where the drama is or could be I found this a terribly dispiriting show, actually, and I've looked at her, her work in the past with some interest, and I've always wondered what she was going to do with it, and I've waited patiently. If this is what she's going to do with it, then she's really miscalculated her talents, and the moment, I think, as well. This is not the time to try and create a codified uh, style of this nature. Um, it, things should happen in pictures of this kind, and nothing much happens in these other than the graphic, and it attenuates her graphic touch to the point at where it loses even the energy that it had in smaller formats. I think that's uh, I, I, I think that's kind of harsh to actually the, the, the painterly finesse that, that I was able to gather from the work, but you yeah, know, I think one a lot happens meet. in them from hmm? picture. I think a lot happens in them from picture to picture. You know, I kind of at a certain point I sort of after my initial like oh no, you know, am I going to have to change my mind and not like her paintings anymore? I just said, well, all right, I'm going to look at them carefully and see, like, you know, which, which are the ones that are, that are no good, you know, and why? And, um, and then I couldn't find any, you know, they all, as, not, as soon not, as I... They're, they're none of them no good, they're none of them that are good. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, the, that's the, the danger of the middle road. Let's, let's look at our last painter... <laughs> Um, Gabby, please. Uh, this time it is Chris Martin. So, Rob, um, uh, <coughs> the complaints about Ellen Birkenblit and the, the, the lack of color, lack of touch, lack of uh, feeling and uh, things happening in pictures. There seems to be a lot happening in these pictures. Yes? Well, first of all, I didn't complain that Ellen Birkenblit didn't have color. I did complain about lack of excitement at other levels. But anyway, um, no, I think these are very interesting. I think he's a very interesting artist altogether. And I've been to his studio over the years at least, I think, twice. I saw a show of his last, or two years ago, uh, that was in um, uh, Brooklyn. It was very interesting. Um, this particular show surprised me, though. There, he is a really good painter on a grand scale. Um, there are not that many people who know how to make it big and how to make it good. Um, he's found a format which is not absolutely unheard of, but it's done in a way that I've not seen before, which is basically to take large sections of tarpaulin, and stitch them together, use the seam as a part of the composition. He paints, he paints with flat paint, as Rickenblatt does too, but he knows what flat paint can do when you really uh, exploit its uh, possibilities rather than just sort of let them lie. And uh, this show was all small work. And I would have wished there was one big blow it away painting in this show. And then, as it was in the show in Brooklyn, you'd have the small ones where you can see him concentrating ideas, developing ideas, and so on. And um, I hope that the dealer follows this up fast with another show and gives him his full scale. And incidentally, or not incidentally at all, uh, he's a Yaley. Uh, and he studied with Yaley, or was, uh, and he studied with Al Held. And Al Held has not always been an easy person to follow up on. Um, one of Hal Held's most distinguished students now has a show uh, at Betty Cunningham. That's Rackstraw Downs, uh, and he painted Al Held paintings until he stopped painting Al Held paintings and made his own distinctive paintings. Uh, it seems to me that Chris has found a way to take something of Al Held's and do with it something that is not what Al did and is very, very lively and fresh. And he's not a kid, so he's doing it now, well into his mid-career. Oh. Um, James, did you get you? more from Martin than you did from Birkenblit, and did you get enough? I got more, and I didn't get enough. <laughs> so, I, I thought that the paintings that worked best were uh, the, the, the 
small, relatively clear paintings that had a, a kind of pod, pod-like thing, pod-like things in them. These the sort of glitter paintings, the ones for uh, Samuel Palmer, mm. and one of them was untitled. I can't recall what the third was. But those had a clarity to them, a compositional interest, and even a painterly texture that I found satisfying. In terms of the others, I, I recognized the connection between these works, and many of these works, and what Alfred Jansen did. And I thought that Alfred Jansen did it so much better. You mentioned, David, that obviously one can't gather from these images the, te the texture, the factor of these works, or to use a, a term that Barry used earlier, the haptic quality of the, the works. Uh, I realize that when you have painters like this who are evidently, manifestly, impasted, right? The, there is this full painterliness to their work. They're inviting you to praise the paint textures. But, but here it's not, it's not just paint textures, no, there are things no, actually well, embedded, right, okay, objects. Okay. Yes. But, but in terms of the paint textures, yes. I found that there was a lot of paint there, but not necessarily a lot of paint texture or not necessarily interesting texture. In terms of the assemblage element, the the addition of objects from the real world, I wasn't as impressed by that as perhaps you were. Yes, Barry, what did you make of this show? Um, I'm, I'm actually still um, still digesting uh, Rob's uh, connection with um, Al Held because mm. I didn't uh, you know I didn't know anything about uh, Chris's kind of educational background or that he'd been taught by Held, and I, I, that's actually uh, for me, sheds a whole new light uh, on it in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. Um, uh, on the other hand, I, even though he cites uh, Jensen in one of the paintings, I don't really see that uh, that much of a significant connection to Jensen, except that I think for a lot of people, Jensen is a an exemplar of someone who was just an independent-minded artist who went his own way without reference to uh, what the art world was doing. And, um, but the, the, the artist that I somehow kept in my mind uh -huh. connecting with um, was Elizabeth Murray. And, uh -huh. um, and the kind of, uh, uh, kind of bo bohemian uh, uh -huh. sensibility, if you want to put it like yes. that, that, uh, that they share in this, uh, sense of you know oh I can do this or I can do this and um, uh, I make up my own rules as I go along and it can be as funky as I want it nothing has to be slick and of course the, the very different kind of play with three dimensionality that he shares with her um, I think has something to do with that that you don't have to uh, respect the picture plane in any way mm -hmm. Uh, nothing really particularly has to be uh, respected in, in the play of, uh, of, you know, kind of artistic spontaneity and imagination. Now, the, uh, in a way, the kind of downside of that is that um, 
when you kind of do all these different things, some of them pan out yeah. and some of them don't pan out so much. Well, that and we know is going to be the downside of any artist who doesn't uh, hit upon a formula and stick with it. And, but I think, th in a way, the smart thing uh, about him is that, um, you know, I think in his heart of heart, he knows which are the ones that don't work because normally there's only one of, of that thing <laughs> uh, that, that, that gets shown. Um, yes. I, I found I was absolutely blown away by the show, and it was a great discovery for me. <coughs> I loved every second of it. Um, I, I've been aware of him for a while. I saw the show with a very big painting in, in Brooklyn, and um, Rob missed the scale, but I found that the, this, this show had a quality that uh, didn't really require that the scale had been in that um, earlier show. Um, for me, the greatest excitement I can have in seeing a painter is to have that painter help me understand other painters that I already really love. And for me, the, the excitement of seeing... Uh, this Chris Martin show is that two, two painters I really, really admire a great deal, but are very different painters. One has been mentioned already, Thomas Noskowski, that you mentioned earlier. Another, I would say, is, is, is Merlin James. Two very different painters. And yet, if, if a painting by Merlin James and a painting by Thomas Noskowski got together and had, had a child, it might be a painting by, <laughs> by Chris Martin. And as is always the case with children, they run around a lot faster than their parents. So those are two quite slow painters. These are very, these are very fast paintings, both in the way they seem to be put together and the way they impact and the kind of jouissance and excitement and irascibility. But they have something about that um, intense, um, elegiac, nostalgic quality that you get in Merlin James and that kind of quirky, um, obstinate search for an image that you get in Noskowski, and they, they really bring them together. That velocity, oh, yeah, uh, velocity. The, the velocity you talk about seemed to be new to me in his work. I haven't seen it for a few years, but let's say the work I remember from the 80s and the 90s uh, tend to be much more heavy exactly. in feeling and um, also coloristically, mm -hmm. uh, you know, much darker for the most part. Um, so I don't know if this is this kind of it's a more floating uh, kind of quality to to these that that seem new to me. To no, I, I I I like this show, and I, I wasn't trying to knock it. I was just trying to say it's interesting that now that he's moved into a gallery with high visibility, that this other dimension of his work wasn't on view. But I like this show quite a lot. Um, I think actually also his his work and Tom's and Elizabeth's and so on put. Uh, to rest a little bit, your pessimism about the postmodern condition and people finding mm -hmm. no joy in life. Um, there are people who, in fact, do um, uh, find quite a lot of joy in painting. Um, I'd like to say maybe the inspiration is something that shows up in another gallery across town, Brent Sikema. Uh, right. It's James Brown. The Mark Bradford show has a huge uh, James Brown die built into one of the texts, right. and this one has the hardest working man in uh, rock and roll uh, in the text. So uh, in these dire, dire times, we maybe can put Foucault to rest and do a little bit more um, funky chicken. I think funky chicken is a good note on which to end. Actually, that's, that, that's Rufus Thomas, but anyway. To end from the panel, at least. Uh, there are two, thing, two pieces of business. The first, uh, or rather the second, will be to have comments and... Uh, uh, from from the from the audience on the last three shows we've looked at, but the uh, uh, the other piece of business is as I promised you to give details of of the next panel and uh, rather proud of myself this month I'm able to actually tell you what shows we'll be looking at next month so you can um, uh, put those in your notebook straight away the March 14th panel 
features Svetlana Alpers, who's with us this evening, Linda Nocklin, and Fong Bui. And the exhibitions we're going to be reviewing are Jeff Wall at Marion Goodman, Dan Walsh at Paula Cooper, Michal Rovner at Pace Wildenstein, Catherine Sullivan at Metro Pictures, and Sylvia Beckley at Peter Freeman, Inc. So ladies and gentlemen, that will be your panel next month. Please thank your panel from this month.